0: This is the problem we're trying to solve, which is those patients who, who, are, who are battling serious disease are having the hardest time getting the medication they need because of the broken system. So we're trying to make a difference there. And our house HouseRx vision is to try to decentralize this specialty pharmacy experience. So right now you have four companies that are all insurances, insurance companies that own 88%. 88 four companies, I just want to underscore that, of the, of the market which means that there is an actually real choice of providers.
1: And now from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the health technology podcast with your host, Christine Winoto.
2: We all know that waiting in line for your medication can be a slow and frustrating process. But with the rise of specialty pharmacies, we are beginning to see faster and easier access to certain medications. Co-founder and CEO of RX, Ogi Kavasovic, is here with us to explain the inner workings of this 250 billion plus dollar market. With 20 years of experience working in tech startups, Ogi sees how technology can fix what he calls a broken system of patients receiving access to expensive medications. Today, I asked Ogi about his journey into health tech and his vision for the future of specialty pharmacies here's our conversation welcome ogie thanks for joining me today
0: thanks for having me
2: it's uh, so exciting to have you and I I thought it would be good for our listener to hear a bit about your background and I just thought it's interesting that. You start your career not really in healthcare, but somehow you're solving the healthcare problem that we're facing. Maybe you can share with us your journey.
0: Yeah, I mean, so you know, the the connection between me and healthcare is the, is, is the same as uh, is the connection between startups and healthcare these days. Um, it's so great to see that there's such a, um, a rich ecosystems of startup. Companies, technology, and otherwise uh, that are trying to make healthcare in the U.S. and worldwide, but particularly in the U.S., better, and it needs to be better. Um, and so that's kind of that's kind of where I come into the picture. I'm uh, I happened to you know I was a computer science major in college, and I just happened to be graduating during the first dot com boom. And so instead of you know, whereas People who were three or four years, and this was in 2000, people who were three or four years ahead of me would have taken jobs at Microsoft and Oracle. Those those are sort of the big software companies at the time that were gobbling up all the talent. When my generation was graduating, all of a sudden, this is a very new thing, these quote-unquote startup companies, sort of even a new term back then, Uh, We're gobbling up all the talent coming out from college. And so I was sort of part of that wave. I got gobbled up by a startup as the first engineer directly out of college. That was my introduction to corporate America. It wasn't that glamorous. It was a really sort of terrible office in Waltham, Massachusetts. Uh, uh, Sort of, uh, There was a guy on the cheap. There were two other people there and, you know, and they were trying to, and know I just started coding <laughs> uh whatever they told me to code, and I, I was sort of starting to get exposed to corporate america that way um fast forward twenty plus years later i'm i'm uh afraid to say uh and I've done almost exclusively just startups uh throughout throughout those two decades I think once i've uh, I really like the aspect of building something from scratch and the challenges that come with it, and so forth. And so, over those 20 years, I went from being an engineer to um, today CEO. But in between, really went into uh, product management and product marketing, and those sort of disciplines that are adjacent to the hardcore engineering work. Uh, and I so said that was sort of my transition. Uh, into the business side. so yeah, for better and worse, I've done nothing but startups my entire career. I'm familiar with um, failure in startups, which is which is definitely present it's part of the game. and you know, so I've also been lucky enough to have been part of a couple of uh, pretty uh, significant successes, you know one of the startups that I was in the founding team of went public uh, uh, back in twenty fourteen and the more you know more recent one got acquired. As well for a large sum, and so those were sort of. It was. was, I've also seen what it means to go from concept all the way to a large company and then eventual acquisition. So um, that's my background. And you know, the the the, the latest startup was in healthcare. Was a company called Flatiron Health, uh, where I was part of the executive team. Um, And that was my introduction into healthcare. Uh, So a relatively newcomer to the healthcare space. Uh, but I do bring that sort of startup experience on how to build a company, how to bring technology to bear, to solve a problem. And um, after Flatiron got acquired, um, I started looking to sort of stay, you know, I I, I became so interested in healthcare that uh, I wanted to, you know, I sort of made up my mind that I would, at least for the next next startup, number five now, who mm-hmm. uh, would stay in healthcare and look for a big problem to solve there.
2: It is definitely addicting to be in healthcare. I
0: think. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's such a such a huge surface area. It impacts everybody at some point in our lives. Um, it's easy to relate to on a mm-hmm. human level. Mm-hmm. You can talk to you know. Sometimes when you have a really technical startup, your family, your friends don't understand what you're doing. You know, in healthcare, there's this, this sort of everybody sort of in, understand. Everybody goes to the doctor at some point. Uh, goes to the pharmacy at some point. So they could have intuitively understand. So you feel like you're connected to a real problem, experienced by real people, and it, it, that is motivating in itself. That you're not, you know, you know, working on I don't know. No disrespect to to the to Facebook, but like you know, working on an avatar in the metaverse, but actually trying to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, do something here and in in that 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 could affect people that you know and family members and so forth for the better. And so that that it has an additional layer of motivation. So in that way, yeah, I agree. It is addicting. Is that 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 a feeling of having a real impact is real, uh, really energizing.
2: I think in, in a way, yes, it's kind of you see something that closer to, you know, many people have experienced healthcare, and I think it feels very concrete the impact that easy to digest, I guess, like, oh, I make that yeah. impact because it's changing people's life. But I thought it was really interesting that, you know, before you get to healthcare, you went to, you know, you work for Slumberjee, which is very, you know, oils, energy company, which is so different. But along the way, what are the things that you learn from all the different industry that, because oftentimes people go to healthcare coming from the different industry, there's all yeah. the difference. They feel like, oh, healthcare is so slow. And then when you go to healthcare, they try to speed everything up because the experience they have in the tech actually doesn't always work out that way.
0: Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. I, I've definitely, as as you mentioned, done a bunch of work in energy and um, in the oil industry, and also in the in the utility and gas industry uh, uh, by, by by creating technology for those industries. Um, and um, you know, I. I actually, you know, for what it's you know, I'm maybe a little bit of a contrarian here, but I don't think healthcare is that different mm. than as, as different as people think <laughs> from some of these other industries. You just have to kind of find a, a, a somewhat um, bureaucratic, a somewhat regulated industry, which, which there is no shortage of out there, and then it it actually <laughs> it actually mimics healthcare pretty well. So, just as an example, I mean, right before I got into healthcare. We're a startup that was selling to gas and electric utilities, like the word the likes of PG and E here and San Francisco, but and all over the country. And it's not that different than selling to a health system or selling to a insurance company. Uh, you know, it, you, local utilities are almost like local municipal governments <laughs> in some ways, with many layers of of leadership and processes and matrix organizations, and also heavily regulated. Um, there's sort of these like layers of regulations, both at our federal level and at the state level and at the municipal level in the case of utilities that all interact with each other. So, um, I get this, asked this question a lot. Like, you know, when I first came to Flatiron Health, a lot of people were like, well, how did you make the transition healthcare so special? I was like, well, actually I came from an industry that was, had very, very complex, State level energy efficiency regulation that we had to navigate. Uh, you know, I came from a place that also used data and in interest in in, in a lot of big data, quote unquote, uh, to uh, to solve some of the um, you know some of the issues at hand. And I came from a place that had to sell into big organizations and navigate that sales process. So, honestly, to me, when I when I first stepped foot into a healthcare company, it all Looked familiar. There's <laughs> a different, you know. Uh, it, of course, there were differences too, but there's a lot of familiar where there's a lot of the same playbooks that we had um, at the company Opower Power that I, uh, I'm alluding to before Flatiron Health around everything from sales, to how to how, how to build product, to, to how to do marketing in this type of environment, to having a regulatory team, how do they interact with a sales team. All of that was was uh, largely reusable, mm-hmm. um, um, in healthcare. So, um, so yeah, but 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 then I and then, but then then there were a bunch of healthcare spe- specific things. I think the one the one thing you learned really quickly is is sort of the high level of sensitivity and protection around um, people's health data, um, the fact that. That sometimes you're dealing with life, or life and death situations, mm-hmm. uh, and that's not an exaggeration. I mean, we worked with cancer clinics and at Flatiron Health, and we were sort of right there working with the people who are who had patients who would pass away. You know, routinely, of course, uh, and sadly. Um, and you sort of learn how to interact with that and how to absorb that mm-hmm. in your in your day, you know, in your work day, in your weekday, in your work week. Um, that was new. And that was visceral. Uh, that's not something that really sh- shows up in most under industries, right? Um, so yeah, and then and then the the additional level of protection and sensitivity around that you sort of have this like very like additional level of respect for the profession and for for the for the data that for your customer if they're a healthcare provider or for the patient of course either one. If either one of you is your customer you, there's a, there's an additional level of of respect and um, protection or protectiveness that you feel uh, so all of those things all of those like dimensions were I think new in healthcare but again you can uh, I think to anybody listening that might be in a different industry or a different major or something like that that might be interested in healthcare chances are a lot of the knowledge that uh, you might get from other industries can be applied.
1: This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rudnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping medtech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, Turn to the experts at CanonQualityGroup.com.
2: I thought it's interesting that you mentioned. I mean, there's a lot of similarity, familiarity. And one of the things that oftentimes people in healthcare, at least in the U.S., we like to think that um, in many other industry, people who pay for the service are the ones who receive their service. And oftentimes in healthcare, it's not really the case. Right. And it's... it's, um...
0: It's uh, the the people who are paying for the service are not paying attention to what they're paying for, and what I mean by that, in particular in the U.S. healthcare system, I think it's it's it's, in my opinion it's the crux of a lot of the issue. Because if you think about it, you know, so much of the healthcare is paid for by employers, Uh, and then if you look, you know, other, you know, and if you put aside some of the most sophisticated, very large employers like Walmart for example or Amazon where they really like get into bring a very sophisticated team to analyzing their healthcare spend for most sort of middle sort of uh part of the dist- distribution of your employers it is somebody right if you think about who actually makes this decision somebody on the HR team the people ops team that whose job is to do something else probably in most cases they're sort of just part of the HR team but you know, once a year, they need to like do this uh, somewhat annoying thing where just pick a healthcare plan for the employee population. And there are a bunch of brokers who come their way, and they're sort of don't understand half of the sort of mumbo jumbo that they tell them. And they'd be like, well, you know, what does everybody else pick? And let's just do that. And I have seven other more pressing issues to get to today. Then, you know obsessing whether I should go with United Health versus Cigna on which plan and what is the what are all the different rules and so forth. Uh, and so and so they make a decision and they never think about it again. And that decision is incredibly consequential because then it's that employer who's paying the bill. Mm-hmm. And so whatever shenanigans that might might happen behind the scenes, like nobody's the people who are actually paying are not paying attention to them because they have other they just sort of assume that's a cost of doing business and they pay whatever it is that they have to pay and move on. It's almost like a tax. And that's a real, um, that's a real big, big problem. You can, and you know, you and there, that, that creates an environment for abuse, mm-hmm. right? It's almost like you have a, I don't know, like an uncle who sort of gives you a stipend and, <laughs> It doesn't really, doesn't really, you know, uh, doesn't really pay attention to what you're spending it on. And, doesn't, and there's no rules how to spend it. And so you just sort of go out there and, you know, who knows who you're to, what you're going to use that money on. Uh, and that's kind of how I feel, like, you know, the, what can happen in downstream. Mm-hmm. Where all the different players are trying to get a piece of that money that employers are just putting into this big fund.
2: <laughs> yeah. But although I have to say that many of the large company or many of the company now, Look at the cost of...
0: It's getting better.
2: It's getting better.
0: And in and, and, and and, and part, I think, part, in part because was, there's, a lot, there's now an entire ecosystem of startups who are employer-facing. That was sort of like a new, seems obvious today, but there was sort of like a new realization that some of the companies in the last decade or so have, have pioneered. Which is, you know, the traditional models, are, you know, or if you're in healthcare, you're selling to the patient, or you're selling to a hospital, or you're selling to a clinic, or you're selling to an insurance company, or maybe a pharmaceutical company. Those are your sort of options. And somebody at some point said, well, how about the employer? You know, selling healthcare services to the employer is an innovative thought, isn't it? It's like, it's not immediately intuitive. Um, and you know companies like Labongo and others who have done that really well's been tremendous incredible successes what a what a great idea I'm an advisor of a company today called Spring Health, where they sell mental health services to employers um they're doing incredibly well um and so, you know so uh yeah, it is getting better, and that's you know because of the startups that are supporting them now. Employers, it's making the employers more sophisticated buyers of healthcare, and and hopefully pay attention. And in my opinion, is the more they pay attention, the better. And not just to the overall cost. There's so much nuance underneath in, in the overall cost. You know, sometimes if you don't pay attention, I'm give you an example. Uh, if you don't pay attention, you know, some, um, you know, uh, let's say a, a pharmacy benefit manager, which is uh, you know part of your employer cost is what you spend on drugs for your employee base and they'll say well you know as long as you pay us x dollars per, per employee per month we'll take care of everything so it's like black box and so the, from an employer perspective and then you have another uh, pharmacy benefit manager come and say well we'll pay you you know one yeah, I'll use round numbers we won't say we will pay $100 per employee per month and we'll, everything we take care of employees will have all the drugs that they need for whatever, whatever they need it and yours employee said, "Well, it sounds great." And somebody else will come in, but we'll do it for ninety five dollars. And then another one can say, "We'll do it for ninety two dollars." You know, you say, "Okay, great, let's go with 92 And problem solved. Uh, check. Moving on to my next task of the day. But then, if you don't look under the hood, what you what if you had looked under the hood? What you learn is that actually, if you know, you know, what you get for that price is, um. Almost, you know, like, you know, something that we see, for example, very commonly in the pharmacy industry, which is you don't have, there's no patient choice. There's no employee choice. So if you do want to have a particular drug, you have to fill it with a particular provider, which which could be halfway across the country. So they have to FedEx the drug to you and you have to call into a call sender and go through a bunch of bureaucracy. So you're like subjecting your employees to quite a bit of hardship by making seemingly easy decision to go with that $92 plan or 90, any plan really has this has this feature. And so, um, and so you really have to kind of look under the hood and, and look, okay, so what do I get? What does the employee, what does what my member experience look like? You know, um, and, and so forth. And that's not easy to do because even if you ask those questions, then you have to know, okay, well, what is standard and what is not standard? What is market? What is reasonable to ask for? What is not reasonable to ask for? And so unless you like really take the time to educate yourself about a bunch of different things, you're not really in position to negotiate with these experts. And so they always sort of take advantage of that. And so, you know, how do you solve that problem is is a real tricky one.
2: I almost feel like if you are an employer side, you should hire somebody from the health plan side to be part of.
0: Yeah, and so there are yeah there are these broker there are these health health insurance plan brokers out there. There's an entire broker industry right to your point, that has emerged specifically to solve this problem. And so there are a bunch of these brokers are going to come in and advise you. And the problem there is that there's all kinds of weird incentives behind the scenes.
2: Right, right. It's always follow the and
0: money. <laughs> yeah, follow the money, and then you'll then you'll quickly find out that. They're not necessarily acting in your best interest, but in their own best interest. And they're not they those two interests are not always aligned.
2: Yeah.
0: So, you know, a broke just like very simply, a broker generally is in, is incentivized to sell you, you know, the plan that, that gives the has the best kickback or commission plan back to the broker if they sell it. Yeah. Not the actual best plan for you, right? And that's that's just a And it's not the broker's fault per se, right? Everybody, every actor in a system acts according to to, to their best interest. It's just that the system is off. Um, They're doing the rational thing, which is, you know, if you're a broker, healthcare, healthcare insurance broker, you're trying to make as big of a commission that month to take home as you can. So you ask, what are the rules of the game? Right. How, how our commission is paid, and then I'm and I'm gonna go every day and hustle and try to make as big of a commission as I can for myself and for my family. Like they're not bad actors, they're just given the wrong rules of the game, right? Yeah. And so there's a lot of examples of that all yeah. throughout the system.
2: Which make me uh which brought me to my next question is about <laughs> house Rx and right. how do you know, um maybe we can start with like what is house, you know, what is house? Rx is trying to solve and what's the genesis of it?
0: Yeah, I alluded to it a a bit uh, in my PBM example, but uh, there is one particular, you know, uh, we're working in the specialty pharmacy space and that that term doesn't mean a lot to a lot of people. Uh, So I can sort of explain it at a high level, but like the specialty pharmacy really is a euphemism for, Really expensive medication. In fact, the Medicare definition for specialty is any drug that costs more than I think eight hundred and fifty dollars a month uh, per per patient, um, and then they change that number every year depending on inflation and so forth. Uh, but it's also it also means uh, medications that treat complex conditions like cancer and rheumatoid arthritis and Alzheimer's and sort of these are neurological. Uh, Disease of diabetes and so forth, um, and so uh, there is a there's a big market. It's a two hundred dollars fifty plus billion dollar market, and it has a very it's 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 evolved to be a very strange market that leads to a really difficult patient experience. And that sort of the example that I alluded to earlier, which is if you're a part of your employer health plan, and you get you are in need of a specialty medication, which by the way means you are probably battling. it Significant disease, you're going to have a very hard time getting access to that medication. And the reason is, you don't have choice of pharmacy. Your what you'll quickly learn is that your insurance company will say, "Yes, we will pay for this drug as part of your insurance plan," but you can only buy it from us, insurance company, which is which is pretty which is pretty uh, remarkable. Uh, And then, okay, then you say, well, how do I get it? Okay, great. How do I buy it? Well, not great, but you're like, okay, (laughs) how do I, how do I buy it? And then they'll transfer you to some 1-800 number and then you'll sign up on something and then you have to go jump through a million more hoops. And an average time, it's about, it takes about two weeks before somebody will FedEx it to you from halfway across the country in a box with a bunch of ice packs in it because a lot of this medication needs to be cold chain. And maybe you see it, maybe you're there in your house when it arrives, maybe you're not. It's a whole problem. And so it's it, it, it leads to a lot of bad outcomes for patients, really frustrated patients. And and this is the problem we're trying to solve, which is those patients who are, who are battling serious disease are having the hardest time getting the medication they need because of the broken system. So we're trying to make a difference there. And our House HouseRx vision is to try to decentralize this specialty pharmacy experience, so right now you have four companies that are all insurances, insurance companies that own 88%. 88 is four companies, I just want to underscore that, of the of the market, which means that there isn't actually a real choice of providers.
2: The price point is about the same
0: too. Yeah, it's all the same. There's no competition. And so our vision is to have, you know, Hopefully, eighty-eight percent of the market being controlled by four thousand, <laughs> you know, pharmacies all across the country, and that's at the highest level. And, gonna, and just have it be local, just just like your CVSs and Walgreens of the world that are in every corner, in every town, and you can sort of have choice and different options, and you can choose whether you let people prefer Walgreens, some people prefer CVS for weird reasons. Uh, that doesn't exist in specialty pharmacy, and I think it needs to. I think everybody intuitively understands that it needs to. It's be better uh, that for the competition to form. So we imagine a world where specialty pharmacies are everywhere, and um, and in particular, you know, the way we're going about it is actually not just everywhere, but being conjoined with specialty clinics. Mm-hmm there's an infrastructure and like a really like one of the most pragmatic ways to make this happen in a relative that in a way on a, a timeline that won't take a hundred years <laughs> right is to uh, take advantage of existing infrastructure and so there are thousands and thousands of specialty clinics all across the country existing and we really like this model where uh, because both because of the existing infrastructure but it also because these are complex diseases it makes sense that the uh, the application of medication is closely coordinated with the with sort of the medical treatment as well, the medical set of things. Uh, and so what House Rx does is help specialty clinics add a specialty pharmacy and specialty pharmacy services as part of their offering mm-hmm. uh, to their patients.
2: So that means like for me as patient, I go to oncologist specialty practice and then they give me a medication, uh, like a cancer drugs, and I can just buy it online through your site. Or there's a brick and mortar. You can get
0: it right there. No, you got it right there in the clinic. You can get it right there in the clinic. They have a sort of a physical space within the clinic that is a special pharmacy to have some have some to keep inventory there to anticipate. We help them with all of that. We help them anticipate the inventory they would need based on their visitation schedule and based on what's so for the most. Um, frequently prescribed drugs, you can just pick it up right there and talk to the, and the care team,
2: and the price will be lower compared to if I have my insurance.
0: Well, yeah, in most cases, I would say now in most cases the price would be the same, and mm-hmm. that the reason is is that you can actually the, what the price in this case because it's always insurance paid. Mm-hmm. They're really expensive medications. You're talking about multiple thousand dollars, sometimes mm-hmm. tens of thousands of dollars. Right. Nobody, nobody's paying cash. Mm-hmm. If, it, if they were paying cash, yeah, the price would be pretty low, mm-hmm. but that's not really, that almost never happens. What the price is what your insurance company says is your copay for that particular medication. And it's predetermined by your insurance company. So it turns out that whether you do it this way or whether you have, you know, wait two weeks to get it shipped to you halfway across the country, your out of pocket will be exactly the same. So there, the, uh, and and so there won't be, you know, uh, and and we're trying to over time influence, you know. There's ways we think we can uh, improve that in the longer run, mm-hmm. and and start, you know, working with our providers to prescribe lower cost medications. And so there are some formulary management things you can do to actually save money to the patients. But this is controlled by the insurance. But what you can do is for the same copay that you would have paid, you know, this really suboptimal experience. You can get a really great. Mm-hmm. So the white glove experience with the experienced care team, the same care team is taking care of you mm-hmm. and your sort of medical, you know, medical treatment of your disease, the same team that would be uh, providing you with the medications that need and following up with you, make sure that you're taking it, teaching you how to take it. A lot of these medications, by the way, are self-inject medications. Mm-hmm. It's a really intimidating thing to just like get online and come to your home and figure out how to, you know, mm-hmm. insert the syringe somewhere mm-hmm. into your body. And so having a local team where you can go and talk to them in person, they can show you how to do it. And if you have any sort of apprehension about it, they can be there to support you and so forth. That we think is very important.
2: What do you think about, you know, now everybody's talking about the Mark Cuban uh, pharmacy company. And actually a friend of mine uh, mentioned to me the other day that his father, his father has cancer in, um, so his mother, they, they go to a very, uh, just, you know, very, the cancer center in East Coast, that's really known. And so told his mother, I was like, well, you know, you can take this medication. If you go the regular route, it costs $18,000. But if you go to this uh, Mark Cuban pharmacy company, I think it's called, I don't remember,
0: the cost cost drugs. Yeah. drugs,
2: it's, it
0: costs
2: $36, $18,000 and $36.
0: Yeah. So...
2: And how do you view that? Like, how does that play with House
0: RX? So, look, I I think what, what I, I love sort of what Cosplus is doing. Uh, we're very, very supportive of the the fact that it exists and there's this additional option. I do think this example that you are bringing forward is, is a little bit of a marketing gimmick. It's not really accurate. And what's actually happening there is the the eighteen. So there's a couple of different things happening. One is that there's a, a there's an eighteen thousand dollar brand name drug, and the generic version of it is might cost like so, you know I don't example. I'll take numbers uh, as you said of thirty dollars. And so if you prescribe the brand drug, uh, certainly it may, it may be this crazy, but nobody really does that. So any if you look at if you actually compare generic drug to generic drug. The price that it's on cost plus drug, and what it would be in any other pharmacy would probably be very similar. Probably be maybe cost plus has it for thirty six dollars, and some other pharmacy will have it for fifty dollars. So that would be the difference, not eighteen thousand dollars thirty. So they're kind of taking advantage of this general rule where wherever there's a generic version of the brand drug, you should just use a generic version. But they're not the only ones providing. You can get a generic version of the drug anywhere. That's number one. And then the other dynamic that's happening is this difference between paid by insurance, and paid cash by the patient. Right, A lot of the times, uh, you can go, if your insurance is paying, your copay will be $20. But if you look at the invoice to the insurance, it will say $18,000. And you could say, for marketing reasons, oh, well, that drug cost $18,000, and my insurance paid $7,980, and I paid $20, and I could have gotten it. So, The real comparison to the patient should actually be, what did you pay out of pocket with your insurance versus what do you have to pay cash on cost plus? So, you know, it's quite possible that that comparison also be very similar.
2: Yeah. I need to double check with them. But I think that some of it probably there's a pre-authorization, you have to wait and then, you
0: know. Right. So if you're you're a cash payer, you, you definitely, if you're a cash payer and don't have insurance and don't want to deal with it for whatever reason, then yeah, you want to get the lowest cost Generic version of the drug, and cost plus is one of the best. You know, for the drugs that do have on formulary, uh, it seems to be one of the lowest cost providers out there. So it's great that they're out there as as an option. But, but most people in specialty, I would say fewer, certainly fewer than ten percent, maybe a lot smaller than that, I don't know off the top of my head, are not cash payers.
2: Mm-hmm, right. So, I mean, I know we're like close uh, on get running out of time soon. I want to make sure that I ask the question. You know, you have all this experience, you work at Flatiron, and now you're, you know, running a company. Uh, what are the things that you did not know when you started that you learned along the way? And also areas that you learned before that, like, wow, you know, now I know better because of the experience that I have.
0: Oh, my God. I mean, so, you know, especially pharmacies, I can sort of answer a couple of different ways. Um one answer is, and especially pharmacy space has been so fascinating to sort of peel the onion back on. I've spent countless hours and days reading through these different contracts between the various entities in the space, between the distributor and the PBM and the pharma company, all of these different big entities and how they interact with each other. It's just I mean, the amount of learning there is there at the detail level is almost overwhelming. (laughs) So yeah, I didn't know. I would say I didn't know anything. (laughs) Looking back now, how little I knew about specialty pharmacy when I decided to go after it was probably really helpful. Had I known then what I know now, I would have probably been very hesitant to get into it. Uh, So there is this like uh, blissful... Ignorance and naivete that I think a founder kind of has to have at the beginning and sort of optimism that comes from that naivete that is a feature, not a bug. Um, You just have to decide this is an interesting space. There's a lot of problems here. Whatever I think is true now probably going to be not true I'm going to learn that it's probably not true but a lot of the assumptions that i have now are going to prove to be false by the time i keep reading about it but you just have to and you have to be okay with it you just have to make a bet bet on a space um that's sort of in terms of i know there's like a long long list of things that i've learned that we don't have time to get into here but um but then in terms of um things that i've already known that I'm bringing to bear, I, you know, I think a lot of this, is the first time I was always, you know, I've, I've been part of a leadership team. It's the first time I'm CEO. And, um, I think a lot of the, I feel ready for the job in many ways because I've gone through all the different roles, the different companies. So I'm bringing, you know, you know, I'm, as a founder in my forties now, um, I feel like I'm bringing all the sort of past experiences both from different industries and also different roles that I played to bear into this neural. And it gives me a lot of, like, it, it gives me a good amount of confidence. Um, but I think um, that's helpful, it, you know, at least, you know, I, you know, in terms of like management structures and so forth, how to run it, how do you run a technology company internally? I, I don't have to sort of reinvent the wheel there. I sort of know how I would like the leadership team to be structured. I know how I want the internal processes to be. I know how I want the sales team to interact with the product team. All of that, I can sort of not have to, like, figure out as I go. I can put existing playbooks and then focus all the energy mm-hmm. and all the learning into this particular domain space, if that makes sense, and try to get as smart as possible about this space.
2: I was just thinking, like, you know, when, you know, with all of the experience, the past experience you have, you've seen... Um Example for the management structure that worked really well and not so well. I'm
0: sure you learned yeah. from
2: that. And both ways.
0: Right. Both equally equally valuable. In fact, probably I would argue it's more valuable to have learned what didn't work so well. So you avoid those mistakes. Mm-hmm. I mean, avoiding mistakes is extremely valuable for startups because we make a lot of them right. by almost by definition. Yeah. It's all about like mistakes naive mistake after naive mistake for a startup trying to enter a new industry where you're playing against people who've been doing it for many decades. And so given that, you want to at least avoid the one, the avoidable ones, (laughs) (laughs) which is like, you know, know, getting your leadership team the wrong way or like, you know, those things that you saw in the past.
2: So give us some example of the things that you saw that was wrong, that you feel like this is not done well, that I definitely don't want to do it.
0: This way, oh my gosh, where to begin? You know, I've I've seen. So I'll give you. We talked about leadership team for a bit, but I've seen a couple of different philosophies on this. Where it's it's, uh, you know, there's. I've worked with founders and companies before where they believe only the founders of the company. Should be in charge of the company for as long as possible and make most of the consequential decisions. Because when you hire a, a kind of a senior leadership team, you start losing that control or gets diluted. And and I think that's a and, and some companies do it that way. They actually, you know, I've you know, I've seen I've seen companies not create a leadership team and just sort of have the one or two or three founders, depending on how many there are, kind of be the leadership team by def, by by definition. I think this is a significant mistake because what what you have to realize just on, on leadership is that the, the, the goal, I think that makes sense to some extent when it comes to like really important strategic decisions at the end of the day, the CEO or CEO plus the founders get in a room and... Make a decision whether to sell the company, or whether make a big decision whether to acquire some company. Ultimately, those kinds of big consequential decisions will have to come down to one or two people at the end of the day. But most of the purpose of a leadership team is actually not to make those decisions because they don't come up that often. <laughs> well, the purpose of the leadership team is to keep everybody rowing in the same direction. Um, that's that's what I, like if you if you want to have a company be very efficient and grow go, go forward very fast what you want is every team to know exactly where you're going and every day uh, and every week and and if everybody's synced up with their rowing and, and pointing in exactly the same direction your boat will go you know forward at the maximum speed but if everybody's rowing in a little bit different direction even your boat will zigzag and you will not you will not be moving as fast as 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 you can and that is a very difficult challenge and in order to do it effectively you actually need to involve a reasonably Broad group of people, so you want a head of every significant function and department. This is, seems obvious, but sometimes mm-hmm. we examine in startups. We examine everything at the core principle levels, like you know, every company has a leadership team. But you will go to startup, and they'll be like, "Well, do we need a leadership team? What is the purpose of a leadership team? You know, where do, what is the history of leadership teams?" And then we have a bunch of nerds like looking at the history of leadership teams and sort of develop their own opinion. That's just what we do at startups and so you could you you know reasonable mind can actually ask this question but you know my conclusion has been definitely have a broad and inclusive leadership team better than a small one because their number one primary function or purpose is to keep everybody aligned and the more you, more people you have if you get that leadership team aligned and that takes repeated communication and repeated realignment realignment and then then they will in turn keep all their teams aligned on, that, on those same objectives and you will have a better chance of running, running, running fast and being, being more efficient than the big mm-hmm. bureaucratic companies you're trying to disrupt.
2: Yeah, well, that's great. Well, thank you for your time and it's been really a pleasure.
0: Thank you for having me. It's, it's fun talking to you.
2: Thank you.
1: Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto. And our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.